The adventure of grace means being helped. And this is God's holy word. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately concerning Jesus, though he had only known the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. You know, what happens in this text is kind of the rough equivalent of a brilliant professor who is taken aside by his students after a lecture only to have gaps in his lecture filled in by his students and it turns out that what they fill in becomes the making of this professor. That rarely happens with professors because for that to happen it would require a professor who wants to continue to be a learner. It would require this very brilliant man to be humble enough to listen to a student and to be willing to change. But it also would require students who actually have a heart for their professor, who actually see a need, see a gap, and want to, because they care, make a difference in that professor's life and not just have a gotcha moment with their professors. And this is exactly what the situation in Ephesus is with this new character that comes on the scene here in Acts chapter 18. Now, we're going to make tracks in the book of Acts. So I'm, I'm, I'm leaving some travelogue, uh, some scripture. We've moved from Corinth and Paul goes to Ephesus and Priscilla and Aquila, this wonderful godly couple that he meets in Corinth, they actually come along with him to Ephesus, a city of about 300,000 people, the center of commerce in the entire region, that entire region of the Roman Empire. Unbelievable cultural city because of all the people coming and going. Uh, incredible temples to Greek gods. All kinds of things happening. And so Paul goes there. He stays there for a while. And then he decides that he needs to go and strengthen the churches. So Paul leaves. And Priscilla and Quilla just keep serving the Lord there in Ephesus. And it's in that situation that this man named Apollos comes to town. Apollos comes to town and he is preaching the Christian message and people were listening because this guy could speak. He could preach. This guy was an unbelievable public speaker. But you know, we read an Apollo, a Jew named Apollos came and we read past that. I mean, stop for a minute. A Jew named Apollos? 
I mean, have you ever heard of a Jew named after a Greek god? You know, like, thou shalt have no other gods before me? I mean, what kind of a crazy thing is this? You know, a Jew named after a Greek god. Apollos, the god of knowledge, the god of music, of poetry, the god of the sun. Yes, the the same, you know, Apollo, like Apollo 11, like our rockets were named after this god as well. (laughs) Um, A Jew named Apollos. Apollonius is his real name. It's kind of shortened to Apollos. Well, that's very rare. Unless that Jew were from Alexandria. Alexandria, incredible city in the ancient world, approaching a million people. Alexandria, renamed, kind of refounded by a guy named Alexander the Great. Remember Alexander the Great wept when there were no more worlds to conquer? Well, he wanted to conquer Egypt because Egypt was one of the the great jewels and former ruling empires of the world. He just had to have Egypt, and he conquered Egypt. And he basically made Alexandria, a city name. He named the city after himself, poured money into Alexandria, poured officials into Alexandria. Alexandria became one of the top two centers of learning in the ancient world, along with Athens. Alexandria had the largest library by far in the ancient world. An incredible bank of knowledge. And the fathers of that city, and that was also a great city of trade, they believed that knowledge equaled power. And so they built a library and continued to chronicle all the knowledge that they they could get their hands on. Uh, the Jewish community in Alexandria was enormous. In fact, the synagogue, they said the synagogue was so big that they'd have to wave flags from the front just so everybody in the back would be able to know when to pray and not get left behind. This is, this is, this is an incredible situation. And uh, this also was the place where philosophy was moving forward, very progressive, In fact, there was a Jewish philosopher, that's very rare also in the ancient world, named Philo, P-H-I-L-O. Some of you may have heard of Philo. Uh, Philo had this way of of fusing Old Testament truth with philosophy. So a Jew named Apollos, very rare, unless you're from the city of knowledge... And there were lots of people named after the God of knowledge from Alexandria. And that is precisely why he's named Apollos. And um, he was, our Acts 18 Apollos, he was a very learned man. This is one one of the most lettered people in the New Testament. Uh, He had studied, it says he was trained in the truth. He had studied the Old Testament all his days of his youth. He had studied, we learn later as he is, you know, preaching and how he's able to mix it up with the philosophies of the day. He had studied philosophy. In fact, lots of the scholars, the the people in the commentaries, say that he he may have studied with Philo, that he is is that smart. Um, He is not only smart, we learn in our text, but he is incredibly eloquent. I mean, this guy can put it into words. He's got a, you know, he's got a DVD-ROM brain while the rest of everybody has a CD-ROM brain. And he is able to pull it all together. 
Uh, he is passionate in his speaking. Paulus, we learn, was fervent in spirit. It literally means he, he was on fire. The spirit, his spirit was on fire. He was passionate. He was eloquent. And he, unlike Paul, I mean, Paul could certainly get loud when he wanted to, but he thundered eloquently. And people heard Apollos. They were just impressed with Apollos. Verse 24, he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately concerning Jesus. That's Apollos. That's the professor. Priscilla and Aquila, on the other hand, were not uneducated people. They were lay people. They were very educated people. We learned the depths of their spiritual knowledge. We learned that they are great business people and, you know, they did what Paul did growing up. They were tent makers like Paul's daddy. And when Paul went to Corinth uh, for the first time, he needed money. He, he, had, he had left Athens and he arrived in the city alone and he just, quote, happened to find Priscilla and Aquila and they just happened to be in the same trade that Paul grew up in. And so Paul worked for them. And um, it's not that they weren't uneducated. It's not that they weren't sharp. But, I mean, there's just no question as you read this text. Apollos is the smartest person in the room. That's the point. And yet, when they went to the Jewish synagogue and heard Apollos thundering eloquently, they said to one another, you know, there's some stuff missing in his doctrine. There are things that should be there about Jesus and about the nature of Christianity that Apollos, Apollos does not have, and, um, and they wanted to help him. In fact, one of the reasons we learned that they wanted to help him was because they did think he was so gifted. In other words, you can just imagine a Priscilla and Aquila wanting to see the Christian movement, this, this young movement go forward. It's like, man, God has given us that guy? If he could just have more information about the gospel, more information about the things of Christ, what could happen? And, and so they want to give him this information, as the King James says, to instruct him in a, quote, more excellent way. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message from verse 24. A man named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was a Jew born in Alexandria, Egypt, and a terrific speaker, eloquent and powerful in his preaching of the Scriptures. He was well-educated in the way of the Master and fiery in his enthusiasm. And this is what Peterson says. Apollos was accurate in everything he taught about Jesus up to a point. But his knowledge only went as far as the baptism of John. Now, Apollos, uh, or Priscilla and Aquila, had a very humble desire, a very loving desire to help him. How do we know that? Because they didn't refute him. They didn't say, hey, Mr. Professor, not so fast. Don't you understand that this is true or that is true? And they didn't even like pull him aside in the, in the uh, lobby and say, you know, that was a great sermon except you're an idiot in this way or something like that, you know? No, it says in the text that they took him aside. That's code for, they said something like this, Apollos, would you like to come over to our house for dinner so we get to know you and we can talk 
So Priscilla and Aquila, impressed with what Apollos did know, took him aside. And in this context of just humble and loving approach, they began to open up the scriptures. Can you see this dinner? I mean, here's like the professor. And, you know, and like, oh, man, we just love, you know, coming to the synagogue and hearing you preach and blah, 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 blah. And then Aquila says, about Jesus, um, can we talk about Jesus? We know that Apollos had learned very well the Old Testament and he learned all about the Messiah from the Old Testament. And we know that somebody who was under John's ministry had taught uh, Apollos, maybe Apollos being well-educated, hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, maybe he went up to Jerusalem. Maybe he was out in the wilderness at the Jordan River while John was preaching before Jesus came onto the scene. We don't know. But the point is, there's a lot that happened between John the Baptist and this moment. Here's what we knew he knew. He knew that John the Baptist was the person who had, who had paved the way for the Messiah. He knew that John the Baptist had pointed out Jesus of Nazareth as the Lamb of God. He knew by this time, obviously, because he's preaching the Christian message about the crucifixion, about the resurrection, about the payment for sins on the cross. But maybe what he didn't really know was about the giving of the Holy Spirit and what life in the Spirit meant. Maybe he had never heard the Great Commission Uh, Maybe he really didn't know a lot about Paul's simple teaching focused on Jesus' grace alone as being life in the Spirit. And we've got to give Paulus a little bit of a break. I mean, a lot of the leaders at that time were trying to put all of this together. I mean, Acts 15, just three chapters back, you know, they're trying to decide what to do with the Gentiles, and they're not even sure if they're going to make these Gentiles get circumcised as, as Christians. So... You know, they said, no, it's about the gospel. That's Peter. So we've got to give, you know, Apollos a little break. I mean, it's, it's, it's just some gaps that he's got in his, his knowledge. But I'll tell you one thing he did know. He did know from the Old Testament that the, the Messiah was a humble Messiah. He knew the Messiah was a suffering servant, that God would actually come here, that He who was equal to God did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to, Paul would later say, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, humbled himself in obedience even to death on the cross. He understood from Isaiah 53 that there was a humility in the Messiah, a man of sorrows that went to the depths for us. He got that. And though Apollos was so gifted and and the smartest guy in the room, there was something in him that that a lot of people today call a gospel humility. Humility is a tricky thing to talk about uh, because some people have false humility. Some people try to look humble. Some people try to be humble as a work to impress God, which which is a really bad kind. You know, there's all these jokes about Humility, like my goal is to be the most hum- be known as the most humble man in the world and, and all of this. But, but this is gospel humility. And here's what it is. And he had it. Gospel humility is understanding that God humbled himself for us in Christ. 
Gospel humility is about bringing nothing to Jesus and receiving everything from what he has done for us. Meaning, the word proud Christian is an oxymoron. That should not be. Why? Because there's nothing impressive about us. We didn't bring anything to God that he said, I want Danny. No. All we brought was our sin. We, we have nothing except for Christ. And so, by nature, people who get the gospel, who understand classic Christianity, are in a, a, a location in their hearts of humility. I can't believe I have this. It's not because of me. And, and the only thing I will boast in, as Paul kept saying, is Jesus. And in His free grace... And it's work. And gospel humility is like that. And, and, and when we understand that, there's a humility that comes over us. And you know, gospel humility is also about how we relate to Jesus. That when Christ comes into our life, and as we walk with God, the more we focus on Him, and the less we focus on ourselves, something very interesting th- happens in our lives. The love of God floods our life and a security of who we are begins to set in. Our identity is more based on what God has done for us. And when our identity, and and we're not a court low on love all the time, just screaming for somebody to love us. And when we're secure and we're not always manipulating everybody in our life to say we're okay, you see, that's the power of grace in our lives. That is gospel humility. And what happens is when, when we are rooted more in His grace, when we find security in Him rather than ourselves, we're able to do this amazing thing out of His love. We're able to actually prefer other people greater than ourselves. We're actually able to love other people in His name. We have the energy and the desire and the love itself to love other people in His name and be more interested in them. And then finally, we, we teach in gospel humility the most effectively Because we're really trying more to give something. And it's not just giving something. When when it's rooted in Christ and that humility, we're actually showing something. And that is powerful. Because that security comes through. Because that resting in Christ comes through. That love of Christ comes through. That is Apollos. This is the reason the students, Priscilla and Aquila, can confront... The professor, and the professor is like, sure, tell me. Thank you so much. Of course I will listen to you. The smartest guy in the room has this wonderful gospel humility. And when, and when they took him aside, he took it to heart. And he changed. In fact, in a moment, I'll show you the result of what happened in his life and in the Christian movement because of this couple. Let me ask you a question, though, before we get there. Do people say that one of the ways they can see Christ in you is that you're very approachable and humble? You get what I'm saying here? I mean, are you one of those people that's always got to, you know, know it all, be it all, be the smartest person in the room, let everybody know, or everybody in the room exists to make you happy? Or are you just really approachable? in a humble kind of way. If somebody wants to tell you something, is there a pathway for them to tell you? You know, uh, 
It's a hard attitude. And, and all things, really, that are learned spiritually, everything that we learn in our mind is dependent upon the attitude of our hearts. For us to really learn it. You can know all about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus necessarily. You can learn all, you you talk all you want to about the Holy Spirit, but you don't know what life in the Spirit is. You talk about love, but you don't know what love is. Because what we learn in our mind, spiritually put together, is dependent on the attitude of our heart. And and gospel humility is the foundation of the deepest learning. I'm going to read to you from Jonathan Edwards. I was reading Wednesday night from his most famous book called The Religious Affections. I didn't read this quote. But one of the real marks of somebody that really understands the gospel and is, loves God is humility. Jonathan Edwards says in the religious affections, the person who is in the grip of spiritual pride is more likely to think highly of his spiritual attainments when he compares himself to others. The person of true humility considers himself spiritually lower than others, thinking better of them than himself. And here's the sentence I wanted you to hear. He desires to posture himself to hear and learn rather than talk and instruct all the time. Do we, boy, that hits home for me. (laughs) Do we posture ourselves to hear and learn rather than talk and instruct? You see, that's what we see in Apollos. The professor steps down from his podium, if you will, and they say, we, we have something. He says, please tell me. Let me listen and learn. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors and also a mentor of mine, and I worked for him at Raymond Presbyterian Church, where those people endured like the worst sermons in Christendom. Uh, they were very gospelly humble to listen to me when I was trying to figure out what preaching was. Um, but his name is Gordon Reed, and he taught practical theology. And I'll never forget one day we're in class, and he was kind of addressing all the blow-ups that were happening with young seminary students who were going out and taking a church, and it was like a three and out, you know, like three years later, boom, they're gone. And so he was doing the autopsy of what happened. He said, well, right of it's just spiritual pride. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, guys, I'll tell you what. He was very plain-spoken. He said, don't ever forget this. He said, people, people will help you out a whole lot if you just let them. (laughs) In other words, you don't have to be the super apostle. You don't have to be the shell answer man. You don't have to be like Mr. Visionary know-it-all. You don't have to be all these things. It's the body of Christ. Just be the pastor. And have some gospel humility. And people will help you out a lot if you'll just let them. There are people in this sanctuary right now, not about ministry or preaching. You need to hear this. People will help you out a lot if you just let them. But you'd have to be pretty secure in the Lord sometimes to let them. And that's why the gospel is so important when it comes to humility. They had, Priscilla and Aquila, that, that deep gospel humility. And, you know, they are remembered through the Scriptures. They are remembered to this day as, one of, as, as like the, the gifted ministry couple in the, the epistles. I mean, you know that. You know those couples. They're here in the Highlands. 
Um, they're just gifted ministry couples. They love ministry. They love the Lord. They love God's people. They love to get with people. And, and they love, you know, to, to find out what's going on in people's lives, to be able to bless them. They were remembered like that, but they were also remembered in, in just how vigorously they served Christ. And we find out all these places where they went and how much they suffered for Christ. But i tell you the, the other thing they were known for. And this is certainly true in the life of the Apostle Paul. When he was in jail in Rome and the church in Rome was meeting in their house, he said, I want them. They were known, you see, to be the kind of people that if they were ever your friends, they were your friends for life. And this loyalty. In other words, we know for a fact they weren't trying to put Apollos down. We know for a fact they weren't trying to put Paul down. That there was something so redemptive something so humble, loving, and beautiful that it just fused those lives together for the kingdom of God. And you'll know gospel humility when you you see another person wanting to learn about you and know you and love you, and it's not just about them. When I was still an unbeliever in college and someone shared the gospel with me, and I was starting to really consider whether... Jesus was real, like God in the flesh, like the Savior, the Messiah. And there was this guy that God used. And it isn't isn't it a mystery how anybody comes to know the Lord. Because at the time when we're hearing the gospel, yet God underneath is kind of calling us, yet the Holy Spirit is bringing us to life to be able to see it. And all this, you know, faith comes by hearing. All this happens to do when people are showing and telling the gospel. It's an amazing kind of mysterious thing that's going on. So you can't really parse it out real well, but it's just happening. And, And when this was happening to me, I remember this guy in my fraternity, his name was Bill Kreese. I hope he hears this on the internet because I've never talked about him in 30 years. God really used him in my life. And I'll tell you how. Is, uh, he was this wonderful Christian, and I knew it. Um, and I, what I remember about him to this day was you could not talk to Bill Kreese. You just couldn't do it without him being interested in you. That's like one of the first people I ever really met who consistently was like that. He's asking questions about you. And you kind of had this feeling when you were with Bill Kreese, and he's kind of a, he was not an outgoing person. He's kind of quiet. You just had this feeling, this strange feeling that he was celebrating you while he was talking to you, and he loved to laugh. And he had this, this wonderful humility that we're talking about. And you got the feeling you were the most important person in the world. And, and i tell you what I remember about him is you couldn't leave the guy. He would just give you, he would just bless you. And I'd walk away as a non-believer going, that's amazing. I mean, do you think A, people ran from him and didn't want to be around him? Or B, couldn't get enough of Bill Creed? B. And I was in the B category and beginning to open my eyes to what love and humility and the reality of Jesus in a person might look like. Priscilla and Aquila were like that. People must have loved to have been around this ministry couple. And they became friends with them for life. And, 
No, you must have always have felt that Priscilla and Aquila had your best interest at heart when they talked to you. That's an amazing thing. And I know people like that. I'll tell you, one of the people in town that I know like that is a dear friend of mine. He's a pastor, a PCA pastor. One of my colleagues, Carl Calverkamp is his name. He's at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. And I'm going to tell you something. Carl Calverkamp is one of the most sincere people I have ever met. I want to be like Carl Calverkamp when I grow up one day. He's, he's one of the most sincere people I know. And he and Jeannie are both like And you can't get with them without them asking you, how you're doing. And, and not only do they ask you how, somehow they end up kind of counseling you. <laughs> you know? It's just the most amazing transition from being celebrated to being instructed. And all the while you just feel loved and cradled. Your heart just feels cradled by them. A real Priscilla and Aquila couple. And I'm going to tell you something. There are, we, ha- we have those people in this church. We have a disproportionate amount of Priscilla and Aquila couples in this church that just love ministry and just love people. And and you are just like gold. You're just like gold. And we want to be like you. This is the foundation of the one another command, teach one another. That we have to just have gospel humility to listen and gospel humility to be able to love without condemnation. Where relationship in Christ can happen. Look, we see in Acts, after Apollos has had this gaps in his theology filled in by Aquila and Priscilla, he becomes close friends with them, we see the result of what Christ did in his life. It's amazing when he became a possessor of a much more sharp and focused grace of God. What he went on to be in the early church and the kind of leader, and you can go right back to the kitchen and the dining room and the living room of Priscilla and Aquila to wonder where that sharpness and that that incredible uh, knowledge that he brought the ability to, came to and now he's able to preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles in a much more powerful and simple way. We read in our text that Apollos wanted to go to Achaia. If you look at verse 27, that's code for Corinth. Corinth, as I mentioned last week, was the capital of the province of Achaia. And uh, so the brothers, you know, the, the, the believers in that church thought that was a good thing, and they wrote letters of condem- uh, condemnation, commendation uh, ahead of, Priscilla, of um, Apollos. And Priscilla and Aquila, I'm sure, uh, known very well in the church at Corinth, probably wrote one of those letters. Look at verse 27. And, and I want you to think about Paul not being in Corinth. And Paul, you know, he strengthened the churches. Why do we have the, the, the epistles? Normally it's because false teachers have come in. Paul's always worried about these teachers. And so like, for instance, in Galatians, he's talking to people that are trying to take grace away and just put works on top. And there's all these other things. Apollos comes in in the absence of Paul. And what you read in verse 27 and 28, it sounds just like Paul. Because it is. And that's the point. 
of what God was doing in Apollos' life through this gospel humility. Verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He got it. He strengthened people in the grace of God. Verse 28, for he, sounds just like Paul, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, how powerfully used was he? We have this really famous, if you want to turn there, this really famous sentence of Paul in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to the the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, where Apollos evidently had such a a powerful ministry among them that, that some people decided they were going to be Apollos people. That Paul and Apollos hated this, but you know how people get a following? Paul didn't want a following. Apollos didn't want a following. And yet there was divisiveness in the church in Corinth. And this is what Paul writes. He writes, For when one says, I follow Paul, I'm a Paul guy. And another says, well, I follow Apollos. That's pretty amazing. You know, there it is. He says, when you say I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, you are being merely human. And human's bad at this moment. For what is Apollos, he asks. Who is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. No, I planted Apollos through his preaching watered, but it was God who did it all. The Lord gave the increase. In the kingdom of God, the greatest people are not the smartest people. They are not the most eloquent people. The greatest people are the most humble people. Jesus summed it up this way. Right after James and John were vying to be the greatest in his kingdom. In Matthew 20, 25, it says this. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know the ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones, their leaders, exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, let him be the servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even as the Son of Man, he came not to to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's gospel humility from Jesus himself. Let me ask you this question before we pray. What could happen if Christ really showed up in our lives through gospel humility? What could happen in your life? What could happen in this church? Let's pray. Lord, would you exalt Jesus? Would you turn our identity, put it right side up again, that we might rest again in what you have done, completely accepted and loved before you. Not a court low on love, not a court low on security, able to give. And would you cause us to have that Christ-oriented humility that we might serve 
that we might love and lift other people up. And Lord, would you help us to show and tell the gospel within your church and before a watching world that Christ would be exalted and that your kingdom would grow. In Jesus' name.